0: From the newsroom of the Washington
1: Post. This is Cleve with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post
0: Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 24th. Today, the fight over the minimum wage and the high profile role of the Senate parliamentarian, plus a generation gets tech savvy.
2: So one of the proposals that Democrats are including as part of their $1.9 trillion stimulus bill is a measure that would increase the national minimum wage to $15 an hour. This has been increasingly a priority of work-minded activists and people on the left in recent years. And it's, it's become a struggle now here as we debate how to uh, fix the economy in the wake of the pandemic. It's something else to include in the mix for applied plight of workers across the country. My name is Eli Rosenberg, and I cover work and labor issues for The Washington Post.
0: And what is the current federal minimum wage right now?
2: Current federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five dollars an hour. That was set in 2009. So we're talking about quite a long gap. The economy has moved quite a bit since then. This is the longest amount of time that's gone without a federal minimum wage increase in uh, the country's history. And that's sort of giving wind in the sails of proponents of this measure who say now, now is really the time to address this.
0: And what is the argument for why raising the federal minimum wage right now would be important in helping people who are struggling with the pandemic? Like, why is that the key that they say could really help the current situation?
2: Well, we know that the pandemic has not had an equal effect across the board. We know that it's had a much less serious effect on people. The top echelons of our society have been less likely to lose jobs. We know that the public health effects have also played out along these sort of class and racial lines. And we know that uh, economic inequality has worsened over the last year according to a, a wide variety of measures. So people who believe in raising the minimum wage say that this is you know, modest proposal that's long overdue, that's just the start of a process of making life easier for, for a large sector of people at the, at the lower economic rungs in our country.
0: But it also seems like there are some Democrats, more moderate Democrats, who are a little bit more wary of this idea, and in some cases about the idea of a $15 federal minimum wage generally, but in other cases just about whether this is a thing that needs to pass right now, whether this and being in the pandemic is the moment to really pursue this long-term goal for Democrats. What is some of the pushback that you're hearing from, from that angle?
2: You hear a lot of criticism of the measure by saying that with so many businesses out there struggling to make their bills um, in a year when so many businesses out there have gone out of business, that this is not the time to be adding to their costs, that this is a measure that will be better dealt with at another time, not right now, when we're trying to figure out how to kind of keep the economy afloat and keep some of these businesses from going out of business. So there are some questions about timing. and they certainly been raised. I think it's important to to realize that, you know, even if there, this wasn't a pandemic, I think it's pretty likely that a measure like this would be the subject of vociferous debate um, and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be easy to pass either. So perhaps there's a sense that criticism of this is rooted in, you know, a different philosophy about how workers should be paid. And this type of measure is going to long outlast the pandemic. The $15 wage increase, it, it raises wages by about 150 a year, and it doesn't kick in at $15 until 2025. So we're talking about a time where hopefully, realistically, we'll hopefully be well beyond uh, this current crisis we're dealing with now.
0: That's interesting that it's a phased roll-in. So it's not like if this were to be passed, then starting next month, people would dramatically see their wages increase. And in some ways, it feels like that adds to the argument that Democrats who are pursuing this right now aren't really doing it because they think that people who are suffering from the pandemic need it right at this moment. But because this is a long-term goal and that this coronavirus relief bill is a good vehicle for passing as many things that they want to pass as possible. But I'm wondering if there are projections of how this federal minimum wage increase, if it were to be passed, how it would affect the economy and how it would affect the lives of average Americans.
2: Yeah, so that's a topic of hot debate. There's been a lot of studies done on minimum wage increases over the decades and particularly in recent years, more data coming out of um, cities and states that have taken upon themselves to raise a minimum wage. You know, Seattle led the way with its $15 minimum wage proposal, and a lot of researchers have looked at um, the economy there to to try and learn how that affected employment there. There's not exactly a consensus that's emerged from these various studies, but I think there is a group of researchers, economists who've looked at it and, and have found some small disemployment effects, that is minimum wage increases causing some uh, negative effects to employment levels or um, something measured like total hours worked. Maybe you keep your job, but you lose some hours if your wage goes up. But they've also found uh, you know, a huge amount of increases in terms of how many people get raises from something like this, how many people see themselves lifted above the poverty line. That's obviously a topic of debate. Um, the Congressional Budget Office released a study last week and sort of found a study along those lines finding that it would cause 1.4 million jobs to be lost, but it would also lift 900,000 Americans out of poverty and raise income for another 17 million people.
0: That's so interesting. In some ways it feels like that is a sort of counterintuitive idea that something like this could both cause more unemployment, but also decrease the number of people who are in poverty, how does that work
2: well it, it's interesting you bring that up because that's sort of the heart of the debate Is it worth losing some jobs that some people believe are not good jobs or is it worth keeping the exact number of employment we have even if those jobs don't allow people to to live above Poverty in this country. Um, I think there are people who really strongly believe that if a job can't pay someone anything close to a living wage in so many parts of this country, then, then what's the benefit of that job in the first place when people who are on these jobs are already receiving assistance from government programs like food stamps and things like that? But then there are those people who, who argue that we're shooting ourselves in the foot if this causes any job loss and that we'll be setting, setting the economy back in that way.
0: What this debate or tension also reminds me of is a lot of the discussion around the federal increase to unemployment benefits from earlier in the pandemic. You heard a lot of folks bringing up the point or making the argument that, look, these benefits are even higher than some people's wages in some cases, and maybe we should lower them or we don't want to provide people with an incentive to be unemployed. But other people having to push back and say, if these unemployment benefits are more than people make in their jobs, then maybe the answer is that they should be making more in their jobs.
2: Yeah, this is all part of the discussion we're having now, I think in a much more central way than in recent years about what this country should be for not just people with multiple degrees who um you know are kind of at the topper ladder of the income distribution but What does it mean for people who, even when they're working one job or two jobs, still can't pay their bills um, in one of the wealthiest countries in in the history of the world? And so, yeah, questions about how much money those people should be getting. I think there's much more of a sense now, you know, we had a recession 12 years ago. We know inequality got even worse after that. I think there's a sense now that that we don't want to repeat those same mistakes and that even something like minimum wage increase, which, you know, may make things difficult for some businesses that still now, now is really the time to set ourselves on the right foot as we try and correct some of these problems that we've seen in our economy for many, many years.
0: So this is an interesting position for President Biden because, obviously, the coronavirus relief package is a huge priority of his administration, a real test of how effective he's going to be as president. But when he was talking about the prospect of a federal minimum wage increase— he really leaned into this idea of a gradual phase-in, and he was trying to kind of allay concerns among business owners that this would be a rapid doubling of the minimum wage.
3: The vast majority of the economists, and their studies that show that by increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it could have an impact on, on a number of businesses, but it would be de minimis, et cetera. Here's the deal. It's about doing it gradually.
2: I think it's pretty clear that this $1.9 trillion package is huge, relatively unprecedented amount of funding to pour into the economy. Any of these uh, proposals are going to be the subject of a lot of debate in Washington and obviously a very partisan and divided era. So whether or not this is the sticking point that's, that's making, delaying things or not, I think it's pretty clear that, that these sort of debates are not going to be easy regardless of, you know, what specific proposals are included in them or, or not.
0: And what is the issue that will dictate whether or not the minimum wage increase will actually get included in this coronavirus relief bill?
2: Well, there's complicated parliamentary questions about whether or not Democrats can pass a measure like this as part of a process called reconciliation, which just requires them to have a majority vote instead of having to worry about um, a filibuster-proof majority.
0: Eli Rosenberg covers work and labor for The Post. Whether or not the minimum wage increase will happen is mostly a question of the rules of the Senate.
1: And the
3: most important of these rules is a rule called the Bird Rule. And the most ambiguous and thus the most contested part of the Bird Rule is that the Bird Rule says you can use reconciliation for things that are budgetary in nature, but they have to be predominantly budgetary in nature.
0: That's Jonathan Gould. He's an assistant law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. And what he's talking about, reconciliation, it's a process that requires just a majority in the Senate.
3: So now we're going to have all sorts of questions around, for example, the minimum wage. Can the minimum wage be raised under the Byrd rule? That's going to be a decision that the parliamentarian is going to have to make.
0: Jonathan talked to politics producer Arjun Singh about the Senate parliamentarian and why all eyes are on her as the fight for the minimum wage continues.
3: The Senate, like most institutions, has rules. They have internal procedures that dictate what goes on, what members can and can't do, how the body operates on a day-to-day basis. And the parliamentarian is a sort of internal judge who understands those rules, advises members on how those rules are applied, and if necessary, adjudicates disputes about the application of those rules. Elizabeth McDonough, who's been head parliamentarian for roughly a decade, she plays a role both formally and informally in helping apply the rules of Congress. So if you're a member and you want to do something, you might call her up and say, I'm thinking of introducing Bill X. What are the relevant rules here? What am I allowed to do this? What are the pros and cons of me using one procedural vehicle or another? So they really are a sort of internal judge within Congress. So why has this position stayed so nonpartisan in a body that has become known for its intense partisanship? There have been some close calls. I don't want to imply that the history is 100% rosy. On the Senate side, there have been several parliamentarians that have been removed. But we've seen real stability. So the last two parliamentarians survived changes of party control. That there was an election, a new party took control of the Senate. That new majority leader could have fired the parliamentarian, but didn't. So it's worth thinking, and this I take to be your question, how have they pulled that off. They've done a few things, one of which... They know things that other people don't. The parliamentarians have a massive amount of expertise. And if you're a new majority, you don't want to fire the expertise, you want to harness the expertise. You want to use it in service of your agenda. The last thing I'll mention on this is that the parliamentarians emulate judges in a number of important respects. Most notably, the parliamentarians are very devoted to precedent. That they will, in encountering a new issue, the first question is, how has this been dealt with before? They are at this eye of the partisan storm, but have managed to retain this relatively nonpartisan position. What does the institution risk losing if we see the parliamentarian become a partisan actor? Any fault with the undemocratic nature of the Senate lies in the rules, not in the parliamentarian applying the rules. So if you don't like that it takes 60 votes to pass legislation in the Senate, the solution isn't to ask the parliamentarian to depart from the clear text of the Senate rules, the answer is to change those rules. And we have mechanisms for doing so. And if there's a problem with the rules, the Senate should make different rules. I see two paths ahead for the parliamentarians. One is if the Senate were to eliminate the filibuster, the Senate parliamentarians will come to look a lot like the House parliamentarians who do good work and are widely respected but are never on the front page of the paper. And the reason for that is that the House parliamentarians don't have the unenviable job of saying no to majorities. In the Senate, because of the filibuster, the parliamentarians have for decades now been in this very uncomfortable role of saying no to majorities. So long as the filibuster persists, the parliamentarians are going to continue to be in that position. They're going to keep having to say no to majorities, and they might be threatened with being fired. They might be overruled. They're going to be in the hot seat so long as the filibuster persists.
0: Jonathan Gould is an assistant professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. Arjun Singh is a politics producer for The Post. And now one more thing about how boomers are becoming more tech savvy during the pandemic.
1: The pandemic has changed a number of consumer behaviors, but one of the most unexpected and significant shifts has been in the number of older adults who are shopping online for groceries and for everything else. I'm Abba Bachrai and I'm the retail reporter at the Washington Post. This is really a trend born out of necessity. Early in the pandemic, a lot of Americans, especially older ones, realized that the best way to stay safe was to stay at home as much as possible, uh, particularly for folks who are higher risk or in older age groups. And so for a lot of people in their 60s, 70s and 80s, that meant turning to grocery delivery sort of as a lifeline to get things going. And what's been really surprising is how many people have stuck with it since then and have also started ordering just about everything else online.
0: Before the pandemic, Kit, I was you know, fairly well versed in, in computers and apps and stuff like that because I used them. But as far as the online shopping apps, I didn't even have one on my phone, Joseph Clay is a 60-year-old retired mechanical engineer in Nashville. He told Abba that he started shopping online more after trying to navigate crowded stores during the holidays. I went out Christmas shopping and was just overwhelmed by the amount of people out there. And I contacted my daughter, who is a shopping guru, off of her phone.
1: Shopping online has really gone from being a luxury to a necessity for many people who are worried about their health or worried about their exposure when they go out into crowded supermarkets. And so that's really what's driving the shift. I think a lot of people had not seen it coming. People are really wedded to the way that they do things, especially a lot of older consumers who I talked to who said that, you know, maybe they're retired. And so going to the supermarket was something they look forward to. It was almost a social event. It was a real ingrained habit that it was difficult to change until a lot of people realized that they maybe had to.
0: Abba Bacharai is the retail reporter for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.